I think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. It is time for this month in birding, so we'll be brief up top like we usually are. I do have some exciting news about the 2023 Bird of the Year that I will share the next time around when I have a little more time to kind of spread out and do so. I'll leave that as a teaser. Come back next week. Let's just get straight to the business. This month in birding, coming your way with Stephanie Bilkey, Jordan Rudder, and Brody Cast-Talbot. A lot of great bird thoughts, a lot of great bird discussions. But first, the rare birds of the week. This is your rare bird focus for the third week of August, 2022. What a week for the Great Lakes region. Uh, I talked about Wisconsin's first brown booby last time around and how Minnesota birders were eager to add that species to their state list as well. Uh, it, it happened not more than a day or two after the bird was seen on the Mississippi River in Wisconsin. It crossed the river over to Winona County, where it represents that state's first record as well, becoming one of those fun birder trivia answers of individual birds that represent firsts for more than one state or province. Over to Illinois, where a painted red start in Lake County is also a first for this southwestern warbler. These birds and others from that region seem to be very responsive to drought conditions in the region and, and liable to move around the continent in years of heavy drought, as we have seen in recent years. And Michigan, at long last, gets to experience a hot Limpkin summer here at the end of the summer in Ottawa County. This vaults Michigan into the lead of the standings of the most potential first in a calendar year with five the only potential challenger at this point is Minnesota, which has four, though one of those is that Abair's Tohi of questionable providence. Hats off to Michigan. You can now stop looking for birds now that you've found your limpkin at last. Those are the highlights of the week. Before a full accounting, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. You can also follow along with all the rare bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. Uh, it's the last Thursday of the month, and that means it's time for this month in birding, our monthly roundtable discussion on the news of the birding world, and more or less an opportunity to talk birds with interesting people. I'm excited to welcome back some friends from previous months, so let's get to it. On to the introductions. First up, uh, an environmental educator with Portland Audubon, a native Portlander, uh, Oregon, of course, not the other one. Welcome back, Brody Cast Talbot. Hi, Brody. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, although I can't claim being a native Portlander. Oh no, it's, uh, I saw on your Portland Audubon bio that it said you were a native Portlander. So, oh, um, yeah. No, well, I grew up in Portland, but not a native to there. Oh, so you here, draw that distinction. All right, fair enough. Yeah, That's, that has that. a reference to a, a later conversation we'll have about birds later. Uh, native versus uh, <laughs> non-native. We'll, we'll, <laughs> well, we'll, we'll table that for now. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know her from the American Bird Conservancy and Bird Names for Birds. She's also actively working on a brand new yard list. Congratulations for that. Hello, Jordan Rudder. Hi, thanks. 
Good to have you back. And a real deal conservation scientist with Audubon Great Lakes and a real deal Chicagoan as well, I assume. I hope. I hope I haven't gotten both of these wrong. <laughs> it was currently lives in Chicago. It's Stephanie Belke. Anyway, welcome back, Stephanie. Hey, thanks, Nate. Yeah, not a native Chicagoan. I didn't but... think so, but you live there now. So I've, I've, anyway, <laughs> yeah. This is becoming way too complicated. I apparently need to get uh, my research team uh, crack the whip and get them in line. Uh, anyway, it, it's fall. It's the, the best birding season. Uh, to my mind, passerine migration is on. Shorebird migration is happening. The weather is slowly cooling down to a more comfortable low broil, at least in my part of the continent. Uh, it's a great time to bird locally, maybe extremely locally. I want to start with the important questions, which is, uh, Jordan, how is your new yard list coming along? Awesome. Thank you for asking. Yeah. So my partner, Gabriel, and I we moved uh, at the beginning of the month, and we are now at an awesome 25 species for our little Very nest nice. patch. Yeah. Um, and 25, I have to give a shout out, is a pair of uh, great horned owls that were calling and woke us up. So, yeah, you that know, bodes well for yeah, the yard. Yeah. Life, so, um, we both lost. We were betting on the first bird and then the 10th bird. We both lost. Mm -hmm um what those species were but 25 is very solid and really looking forward to to more um the first bird was turkey vulture oh all so, right well then, yeah i guess you could have come up with that if you really yeah. sat down but i'm sure you have both had more exciting things in mind <laughs> yeah. for your first list um so how do you how do you keep your yard list what are your yard list rules uh, this is a question for all three of you because i assume uh you keep a yard list at least to some extent even if you don't actually write it down um do you count birds that you have to be in the yard. They have to be in the yard. Do flyovers count if they're not in the yard, but you hear it in the yard? What What are your rules? We have so many rules. I know. Um, <laughs> if you didn't know that we were bird nerds before, you're definitely going to know now. Yeah. Um, especially because you have what eBird can provide list-wise, mm -hmm. right? But then you also have the list of did Eider, our dog. Okay. See, dog list see, got it quote unquote the bird did both of us gabriel and jordan see it did gabriel jordan and Ider see it so it gets like mega yeah, a lot of incarnations um overall though i think we would probably say we're somewhat purist in the sense that the bird has to be connected to the yard we okay. do not i think yeah. that's partially to give us a little bit more flexibility um but we also then have so so we're now more rural and so we have our actual yard then we have the road because there's an orchard literally down the street from us um so it's like so we have our patch and then we also are doing a five mile radius okay as well and then you have the county which is pretty small washington county maryland where we are is pretty small so it's like this huge nesting <laughs> doll set up for <laughs> yeah. us um also, I have to give a shout out because Gabriel is the coordinator of the Maryland DC Breeding Bird Atlas, and our home block is another list that's connected <laughs> to all of this. Um, we're in the third year of the atlas, and our home block had like not even thirty minutes of effort. Yeah, <laughs> and we've already it changed like, that. Yeah, yeah. I'm totally with you. I think you know. To me, I think that my yard list is, or just yard birding in general, is kind of the key uh part of my birding practice i go outside a couple times a day and or sometimes in winter maybe just stick my head out the door but uh just to hear what's moving around and um and it's yeah it's just uh, to me it's like the the basis of of my birding i like to keep 
my yard list in eBird. And mm-hmm. one of the main, so you can you know designate your uh, location as your yard. Yeah. And one of the reasons I really like that is because they uh, they laid out those um, bar charts for your yard, which mm-hmm. is so neat to be able to see you know this visual representation of when birds are moving through your specific yard. I think that's amazing. I also like because they tally you know all the birds you've seen this year, this month, and uh, it's the one geographical region where I am just crushing. The competition nobody else has like more <laughs> than five close. birds in my yard yeah, yeah. i'm just like way ahead of them so <laughs> that's pretty fun i actually follow different rules uh i have to be in the yard i do the human centric okay uh location the okay. birds can be anywhere and i actually don't have great horned owl i was sitting i heard these crows going crazy i had to run down the street and found a great horned owl in a tree a half block away doesn't Ran count. back to my house got out the scope put it in my yard <laughs> Could not see the owl. It was silent. I have zero owls in my yard list. So my yard is not winning any awards. Maybe I can still win the award of seeing the most birds in my yard, but um, it's, it's a good one. Yeah, it's it's not great. <laughs> I I moved in April and I had high hopes because we're on the third story of an apartment building where I have a view of uh, some nice silver maple trees, and I was like, oh, I'm gonna get all these warblers hanging out in here. Um, not, not a whole lot going on. I, I do get chimney swifts and common night hawks in our urban yard in Chicago. And, um, we had some nesting chimney swifts next door that we were hearing from our balcony. Huh. And, um, the, the night hawks seem to be nesting really close. I can hear them from inside and they were really noisy this May. So that's, that's been a lot of fun, but I, I I guess I liked what Jordan was saying about, you know, your local patch and thinking about your yard, maybe, or your, your patch being more, uh, your, your home base rather than just your yard, because I've, I've adopted, uh, our neighborhood park as my, my go-to spot. And I am proud to say that since moving here into this neighborhood about a a year ago, I've gotten to the number one spot in my local (laughs) park on eBird. Finally, 140 species. So I am pretty proud of that. That's awesome. What a milestone. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> a lot of birds. Um, I just want to, you know, commiserate Stephanie. I am moving from the top floor of an apartment building. So I totally understand what you're saying. And I think that also is, you know, just talking about green space near you and finding what birds are around you. It doesn't, you know, I think there is some privilege to having a yard. Mm-hmm. So I just want to, you know, patches are great too. Um, the the other thing I just wanted to share is I think I now need tips though for how not to get distracted during work. Yeah. Because for the past two and a half years, I was staring at a wall and didn't have windows in my setup. And now I face a window. Yeah. <laughs> so I think don't don't expect me on Zoom video much anymore. <laughs> paying attention. Yeah. So no. my wife and I lived in Chapel Hill. Um, we lived in a little town home in a complex and it had a shared yard with everybody. And I consider that my yard. And actually, if I went to the very, very back corner of it, I could see through this like patch of, of, uh, of pines, a, a small pond. And so I would go out there and set my scope in that corner and look through the trees and try and pick out ducks when they would come on that pond. And I, I, Consider that part of my yard list because I could I was in the yard and I could see the bird from my yard and that's how I got like ruddy duck and uh, and pied billed grebe on my on my list. Um, 
I'm not very good at yard listing at our house now where I live, though I do have a nice little patch behind it. There's kind of a dead end road um, where it's undeveloped. And so there's a power line cut. I think I've talked about it before on the podcast. And I've gone back there and, you know, walked the power line cut and uh, found some actually some really nice, some really good birds back there uh, in spring and fall during the pandemic, especially. But um, the, my my best bird in my yard has been so far uh, common nighthawk just because uh, there's so much fun to see flying over. I did have a yellow crown night heron fly over one time too. That was neat. I, I wanted to mention my rules since yeah, other people were yeah, um, because I I have I feel like I have a different perspective on it because I, I need more birds in my yard list. So <laughs> I feel like if I'm outside and I can see our building and I can see the bird, then yes. it's it's within my yard list. I think that counts too. <laughs> yeah, I've done that before as well. Yeah, especially when you don't have much in the way of an actual yard. Like if you can see it, like if I'm across the road and I can see the house and I can see the bird, then that counts. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Yeah. That's how I added peregrine falcon and common red pole. Exactly. Because sometimes a bird that's, uh, you, you have to put on your yard list because you'd feel bad if it didn't, if it didn't get on there. I, I feel that. I hear that. I am one of those people that I have mocked in the past who runs across <laughs> the street to be in the yard while the bird is flying over. I have well admitted. Uh, you know, back in 2013 through 2016, I was uh, fortunate enough to be living in Bhutan, uh, teaching there. And we were in the eastern part of the country, uh, my wife and I, and down in the foothills. And uh, I spent a lot of time birding. And the one bird that always made me feel like I was entering like dreamland was uh, rufous-necked hornbills. And for folks that are listening, if you've never seen a picture of one, you should look it up. It's one of the most incredible looking birds uh, really in the world. You know, hornbills are kind of the Asian version of toucans uh, and these huge bills, really large birds. And the rufous-necked hornbill, the males have this incredible like orange hair um, akin to say a former president. Uh, and it's, it is just very strange. The feathers look like hair. And it has this really neon blue uh, facial skin, males and females, both. They both also both have this really, uh, really bright orangish pink guler pouch and uh, just really stunning. And um, I remember at one point uh, walking through the jungle and finding, seeing this, uh, this hornbill beak stick out of this tree, slowly opening and closing and realized that it was a, a female that was in the nest cavity and so hornbills a lot of hornbills uh nest in cavities and they're you know big birds they have to have big cavities and big trees and then they seal up the cavity uh entrance hole with their own feces usually and the female stays in the cavity for up to three months uh while she incubates eggs and then broods and raises uh, chicks and the male has to feed her all of her meals for like three months and so I was seeing this uh, bill, you know, slowly opening and closing out of this um, cavity hole. And, and it also just had this kind of uh, bittersweet thing because, you know, that part of the world, well, probably all parts of the world, there's a fair amount of illegal logging and a lot of these bigger trees are being taken out. And so rufous-necked hornbill is, uh, there's probably less than 10,000 of them in the world. And they're extirpated from Nepal, which is where they're originally uh, scientifically described. Uh, and so all this sort of came back to me from this story that, uh, or this um, study that was just published in Current Biology, which is studying the impacts of extinction. 
which as a quick shout out uh, props to these researchers, because if I was you know, doing um, research, I would find extinction way too depressing to actually study. <laughs> so good on them for uh, having the, the uh, fortitude to study this. But one of the ideas that they're studying is uh, the uh, non-random loss of species. You know, as birds, we expect they're going to be going extinct uh, in larger and larger numbers from human causes. Um, that it's not going to be random. And so they were trying to quantify um, phylogenetic versus uh, morphological uh, homogenization as birds go extinct. And what they ended up finding um, was that morphological diversity is likely to decrease at a greater rate than expected through species loss. And to break that down, it means that essentially the more unique looking uh, the bird is, uh, the more likely it is to go extinct, all other things being uh, the same. So the more birds are going to be uh, homogenous. And so they looked at over 8,000 species and they sort of charted their, how close to the mean they were based on bill length and wing cord and size um, and, and then uh, overlaid that on the threat assessment from the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which does threat assessments for all these species, and found that sure enough, the biggest and smallest birds are more likely to go extinct than kind of the average sized birds. The birds that are the most unique are the ones uh, most threatened with extinction. And so kind of a, a sobering thought. Um, they also ironically found that the most imperiled regions would be in East Asia and the Himalayan uplands and foothills, which is the stronghold of the rufous-necked hornbill. I'll just quote the paper because I think that they put it pretty succinctly. They said, the species extinctions will lead to a major loss of avian ecological strategies as the decline of species with unique traits and their replacement with more widespread generalist species continues. The protection of assemblages at most risk of morphological and phylogenetic homogenization should be a key conservation priority. So uh, I always like that kind of conservation messaging, but it's just interesting to think, yeah, how, what, what extinction will look like? This is a reality we probably need to be uh, bracing ourselves for. And really, to me, just sort of calls up the, you know, uh, organizations. I think I immediately went and became a monthly contributor to the Center for Biological Diversity, who that's really their goal, right? Is, is this idea yeah. of, you're not just losing this one species, but you're losing, um, uh, as they put it, uh, these avian ecological strategies. Obviously, it's happening with lots of things other than birds, but this is the birding podcast. So, yeah, just uh, kind of a sobering thought um, to, to look forward and see how this might, um, might play out. It's one of those studies that's like, it seems intuitive. <laughs> you know, why, does, why, do, why do we need to study this? To, is, it, is it obvious? Well, uh, yeah, but also... You know, sometimes you need the sort of wake up calls and very stark sciencey language to to get you to to you know care, I guess. And it, as much as I like so called, uh, I don't know, the homogenous birds, you know, like your your standard robins and and uh, grackles and crows and whatever the other birds that are sort of, uh, I don't know, the ones that are the basic bird body types. It would be such a shame to lose things like I don't know, sword billed hummingbird and and the Hawaiian honey creepers and all the right. wild and crazy stuff. How much of this is because I wonder just the homogenization of habitats, you know, we're creating a world where in homogeneity, hom homogeneity is the 
you know, the evolutionary uh, advantage. Right. So. Yeah. I wondered about some of that. Um, but they did look at, you know, regions as well. Um, you know, overlaying some of the, like, like they said that, uh, East Asia and the Himalayan uplands where you're going to lose mm -hmm. a lot of this morphological difference. Um, but you look in the United States, you know, losing Carolina parakeet, which was probably one of the most unique looking birds across its range, uh, almost mm -hmm. losing California condor, you know, the largest wingspan of, of any land bird in North America. Um, yeah, the outliers are going to be the first ones that, uh, that are no longer able to, uh, going to be able to succeed I, I had a thought about that as well in that the more unique birds also have more unique preferences and mm -hmm. habitats so i i think of kirtland's warbler as the example yeah. it, it was always that you know it was only found in this certain habitat that only exists in this one area so it's always going to be challenged it's because there's not there's a limit on where it can go and where it can be found. So right. you're never going to have widespread range for the species that it's, it's really limited to a very particular habitat. Yeah. Or even a large population. Right. So, yeah. And those tiny habitats are, you know, the hard things to save. Doesn't it make you just want to at least focus on a little bit more of the positive of like being so <laughs> awe inspired and yeah, like, <laughs> like, no, but like, I just want to ask all these questions, you know, going back to the beginning of like, why do you have to do this research for like intuitive mm -hmm. things or whatever, but it's because these things aren't going to last, you know, yeah. and so you got to research and study them while you can. And even if it's for questions that you may know the answer, at least you can confirm that before you can't do that anymore. I mean, yeah. huge shout out to museums and specimens that have helped us learn so much, but to actually like see and and listen and, and observe these living breathing birds is just incredible you know it just makes me ask more questions like why why even is the habitat so small then like wh what right. happened there like yeah. how did that yeah probably microclimates exist to create these perfect conditions and then mm -hmm. of course we're not going to have those conditions anymore with climate change and then it's not like you're just going to be able to replace that habitat in a, in a new area and then the birds are going to find it. Right. Right. You know, it was, um, you know, this, this does sort of relate to another story that I, that I put on there, the idea that, you know, the uh, climate doesn't cause species limits in some of these really high mega diverse areas. It's competition with other birds. And that's essentially the story of these micro habitats, these, these tiny little habitats, uh, in the Andes mountain, for instance, uh, where, you know, a bird is only found from like 5,000 feet to, 5,500 feet and it's got this huge long super skinny range but that's where it's found not necessarily climate is driving that but competition with the bird above it and below it and I guess you know if, if climate keeps changing that then maybe those birds that were not in competition are suddenly in competition and then you've got issues with that as well I don't know what do you do with that information uh appreciate what you see when you see it I guess but yeah uh, I just want to point out that since you said grackle was one of our basic birds, I think. <laughs> that's, 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 I take offense to that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, I, I think they are technically declining. According they are. They are. To, yeah, yeah. Some, some lists out there. So so we might even be losing our, our common species. And that's, that's another worry. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I read some research about overwintering 
birds in Mexico City, which was really cool and made me want to go to Mexico, but um, I've never been. <laughs> um, but basically, the the summary is that there there was a study on urban green spaces and seeing what birds are present during the winter. Um, of course, we think of them as our birds in uh, north of the Mexico border that uh, tend to hang out there uh, during our colder months. And so they found that, which seems to be a, a little obvious, that they like trees. <laughs> so, um, but maybe not so obvious that they like cities. So I think that's a really cool takeaway is that our, our birds that migrate from the U.S. are found in Mexico and they can be found in the city as well as what we might think that they're doing is like just hanging out in the pristine Amazon rainforest. Um, but uh, they, they found that they were more associated with areas within the city that had more trees. And I found another paper that had a similar conclusion to that, except that they said that they were also associated in areas where there are fewer pedestrians or people around. So they were picking areas where they're probably like city parks or urban areas where there's a lot of nature around and that's where they're finding food. And there's, uh, you know, a lot of these birds are either eating insects or grains and uh, they're finding it even in urban areas. So it made me think about um, another research project that I was a part of with some colleagues that were actually putting on a publication that'll come out in a, in a month or so. And we looked at how wetland birds respond to urbanization mm -hmm. and what we found is that in the Chicago area that wetland birds can do fairly well in urban areas and it's not necessarily like putting a damper on their um, success in um, the Chicago area at least. So it made me curious about what some of these, if any of these wetland birds that were studying in Chicago also go to Mexico City. So I just quickly looked in eBird and you, this study that I looked at um, it, that took place in Mexico City only looked at you know songbirds but I did find that you can find Sora in Mexico City in some of these urban green spaces. So huh. maybe that's inspiration for the, the next part of the study. Do, do wetland birds also overwinter in urban areas? Yeah, I mean, I, the, the, the last item in the, um, in the article, like where that one of the authors says, like, we need to think of cities as ecosystems. I mean, that's one of the themes here. We, we talk about that a lot on the podcast, but it's one that I think is really important, this idea that people just because there are lots of people around does not mean that there is also there are also lots of there aren't also lots of birds around as well and that you know it's 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 ties into the our yardless conversation you know you don't have to go that far to find a lot of really cool birds now if you have the opportunity to go to mexico city and see a lot of uh cool birds in the green spaces there and uh you know it's one of the great uh one of the great culinary cities uh, in the world too so that would be a nice uh, yeah now you got me wanting to go to mexico city as well uh stephanie yeah, they do make a point about thinking about managing our our urban areas for birds and that, you know, that has a lot of value to it. So I think it's not necessarily something people think about when they're mm -hmm. thinking about stopover, but of course, sure. or overwintering. But of course, in Chicago, there's a lot of birds using urban habitat during migration as well. So I, I'm working on a project where we're, we're trying to think about how we can better manage some of these spaces to enhance them for, for stopover. It's like, we know the birds are there and we can probably enhance more habitat. In, 
Yeah. Is, it, is there any conflict between managing these public spaces for humans and managing these public spaces for, for birds? Probably, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that we have enough park space that we can do both. Yeah, right. <laughs> so... Yeah. Right. And if you need more, make more park space. Park space is always great. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of our park areas in the city here um, in Chicago, we have natural areas kind of built in. And uh, of course, that is providing a recreational opportunity for nature lovers and birders. But um, yeah, I don't I don't think they're necessarily going to want to like turn a baseball field into more habitat but yeah. there's there's still plenty of opportunities for yeah absolutely and there's a lot of mutual benefit too you know portland audubon um, has been pretty involved in what is described as uh unsexy work but that's uh um being a part of the conversations around tree code you know protecting mm -hmm. urban trees and there's a pretty clear benefit to birds there but also the main thing is just how it helps to reduce uh, urban temperatures, especially as we see hotter and hotter weather every year, more people are dying of um, heat exposure. And trees are one of the major ways to do that. And even with Portland having a pretty strong tree code, we're still seeing loss of lots of trees to hmm. development. And so, uh, you know, that's, it's sort of a win-win a to, to prioritize, because I think that was one of the parts of the study was just how much uh, trees really played into uh, providing urban habitat for birds. And Portland is not neotropical, sadly, uh, but we do, um, yeah, we do uh, you know, have pretty good tree cover, but it, it's, it's really, it takes a lot of work to protect those trees, um, you know, and really requires thinking about them more along the lines of infrastructure, uh, an yeah. important infrastructure yeah. that, that needs to be protected. So for anybody out there, uh, you know, go see what your tree code is and, and see if, uh, See if it's being aggressively uh, pursued because in the era of climate change, uh, we're going to need every last tree we can find. Yeah. And the thing about trees is that you can't just have short term solutions. You know, trees have lifespans that are well, well, well beyond the, the terms of various local polit politicians. You know, you've got to think, you know, 100 years, 70 to 100 years ahead when you're thinking about trees and where to put them and where they're going to stay. So you're not, you know, cutting them down after 40 years because all of a sudden they're, they're inconvenient. Right. But every bit matters, you know, even trees in your backyard want to keep that theme going too. don't overlook that, you know, backyard in an urban habitat. Mm -hmm. There are incredible species that, you know, heavily rely on those areas and doing your part um, as individuals means a lot too, especially then, you know, these urban areas really compound all of those anthropogenic like threats, basically, that all of these migratory birds and even residents face. So I'm thinking window collisions, outdoor cats, uh, pesticides, things like that. So it all it all plays a part and just don't overlook where you are. Yeah. You know, circling back to just the idea of all these sort of tropical, neotropical migrants turning up in, in urban parks. I was thinking back to some times that I've been uh, traveling in the neotropics and Sometimes you'll get off the airplane and you have to go somewhere to kind of wait uh, before other people to arrive before you can get going. Or if you're traveling on your own, you want to relatively stay close to the close to the airport on your way back so you don't have to travel all that way uh, to get back home. Um, a couple of times, both in Costa Rica and in Guatemala, I've been in those situations where I had to like hang out at some kind of 
hotel park or or in one case it was like this the guatemala tourism some little tourism parks thing that they set up and i was you know obviously you pull out your binoculars you want to see what's around and there's a lot of interesting birds in those places uh including um migrants like nashville warbler and uh trying to think of what i saw i have to go and pull up my um pull up my ebird checklist from that time but i'm pretty sure i saw things like like nashville warbler like indigo bunting like uh some of those things that you see up here um in in a park in a few trees here and there in guatemala city it was a very neat experience I had a similar experience in Costa Rica this mm-hmm. February. I had I, I feel like I get just as excited to see the the migrants oh, that sure. I already know yeah. as like a species I've never seen before, which is a lifer. I, I had indigo bunting and rose-breasted grosbeak and yeah. like golden wing warbler just at this little lodge that we were staying. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the city, but it wasn't like pristine habitat. It was more like an edge of an agricultural area mm-hmm. with a little bit of woods and it was it was just really neat to see these birds that have traveled so far that you're used to seeing but in a different totally different place it's also amazing though because then you get to see like the full annual life cycle of these birds in action you know like you don't just have to imagine it and be like okay yeah they're going south for the winter like it's really (laughs) cool to actually experience it throughout the year So on a previous podcast, I talked about my newfound love of European starlings and the actual real story of that. So when I got the opportunity, or thank you, Brody, um, to talk about rock doves, I had to jump at it, especially because on previous podcasts, I've given a shout out to uh, Jordan's dad. That's what many people know him as, but Keith. Uh, and now we get to give a shout out to Jordan's mom, Pam, and her Outlander friends. So if you know about the book and TV show where we time travel to the 1700s, uh, grab your whiskey and haggis. We're going to time travel a few more thousand years back to Scotland because it was just found out that the original population of rock doves is from Scotland. So this worldwide distribution feral species Mm -hmm. um, actually is from Scotland. Who would have (laughs) thunk? I'm not going to use uh, accent by any means, (laughs) but (laughs) but I think it's pretty interesting to think about how this ubiquitous you know, common even has an emoji uh, species is actually pretty uh, rare now as its wild form. Um, if you look at eBird, and I don't, I don't want to, you know, poke uh, poke this can of worms too much, but with their now, you know, exotic oh, upgrade yeah, and everything, those maps are fascinating Mm -hmm. um and really thinking about just the impact of humans and uh domestication um it's just this huge big story to kind of unpack um you know so so rock doves they're pretty pretty meaty birds they're good for for eating um and so that's one of the reasons they were domesticated five to 10,000 years ago. Um, and then humans have just been kind of taking them with them and, and having them around all over the world. Um, but that's not, quote, natural. Um, and it's really interesting to think about what would have happened with the species. How would the birds have moved around? How would they have adapted? Um, 
if you didn't have that aspect of things. So especially in the article, um, that's always going to be linked on the podcast webpage. Um, you'll see that, you know, it says the original rock dove uh, populations are from uh, sea cliffs and caves, which sounds like they're underwater, but they're not. No. It's just like this super epic sounding landscape. Um, but now most people probably are more familiar with them in, um, you know, in these urban settings and, and city areas that we've been talking about for this episode. So it's really fascinating, again, just to kind of think about that it, it's flipped, you know, we're talking about rare birds, rare habitats for the previous few stories. And now, you know, this, this bird that I think so many people take for granted, we overlook it. Um, it now has so many different morphological variations because of inbreeding and, uh, you know, human impacts and everything is, is just something to really celebrate in its unique rare form. Um, so I don't know. I hope I hope if nothing else you take away from the story that Scottish pigeons are super cool. <laughs> yeah, I would I would like to go see these wild type rock pigeons, not only just because uh, that's a really beautiful part of the world, uh, the Outer Hebrides and, and up there in, in northern Scotland. But, you know, just to be able to see a bird that you know we all know so well in the way that it's, I don't know, quote unquote, supposed to be. Although I, you could argue that the ones flying around the, the cities are what they're supposed to be too, because that's just what they are. I don't know, just the novelty of it sounds sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah, I know I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but I feel like it reminds me of like finding the original Taco Bell, you know, and it's like, <laughs> it looks the same, uh, totally the same, but this is the special one. Uh, it is. I, I think it is neat that they found this this population. And I do wonder. I, you know, it made me think about uh, what you were talking about, Jordan, with the the new eBird maps and the the range maps. Now they've changed the colors on them so that uh, exotic species are orange on the range map mm -hmm. as opposed to purple. And then you can look at Europe and tell that like different country eBird uh, reviewers are kind of making their own. Um, <laughs> determinations because like all of a sudden yeah. one country's purple and then one night next to it's orange and i do wonder are they yeah is this going to be our uh, yeah, reviewers going to like look at this and think hmm, you know maybe i should flag ours actually as feral as opposed to wild right. I mean, is everybody going to be going to the hebrides you know to 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 finally see that wild oh vision? no are you saying it's a conspiracy is that <laughs> no, oh not because at we all. love it we love to see that <laughs> Yeah, I love the. We uh, love that. Though, yeah, I, like, I do. I, like somebody, the next is gonna be whoever finds that they've got the original Muscovy duck. Yeah, it's not from it's not from Muscovy, which is uh, <laughs> the old name for Moscow. <laughs> yeah, apparently not in Moscow. Definitely not. Definitively not. Um, then the other thing, because I always want to give a shout out to our listeners participating on social media, specifically uh, Twitter. Um, so Martha Harberson, shout out to you as well as Ryan. Um, Mendelbaum, because uh, Ryan posted a meme that includes the beloved rock dove now, because I'm claim I'm saying we're all going to beloved it now. Um, and if you haven't seen it, maybe Nate, you can link to it we'll as well. It. We'll but it. it's this, it's the, it's one of those memes where it has the um, like purest neutral yeah, the the rebel D &D, or D &D, chaotic. Um, yeah, I forget the the alignment chart for, for yeah. Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, and so the so the one that we're talking about, it's the shorebird alignment chart. Mm -hmm. So there's um, on on one axis, there's habitat on the other. It's taxonomy. So like taxonomy purist and habitat purist is a piping plover because a piping plover is a shorebird. Um, and then the complete opposite of that. And it goes through. It has all these different shorebirds and terns and gulls and pelicans. And then all of a sudden, uh, the taxonomy rubble and the habitat rubble. Rock dove. Rock dove is a shorebird. Yeah, rock, rock, rock pigeon. I mean, it makes sense. They're along the shores of Scotland. I was gonna say, yeah, Yeah. it's it's very much a shorebird. Rocky shore. Yeah, yeah. Again, just hope you all take take another look. Take another listen. And appreciate all the birds around you. Yeah, rock doves especially, rock pigeons, which, whichever one we're going to call it. And we never have any consensus on exactly what the name is. <laughs> I, I do like having this fact in my back pocket because whenever I take people on like urban bird walks, there's bound to be a pigeon. And it's very right. easy to just ignore it and not say anything. But I, I love telling people new like pigeon facts and like... My one of my favorite ones is that you know one of the original places where they were found was in in Greece and cliffs and peregrine falcons were their natural uh, predator. So mm-hmm. it's like we've kind of rekindled that predation relationship. Right, they're both urban birds now. <laughs> yeah, quintessential urban birds uh, now. Peregrine falcon and and rock rock dove pigeon. Mm-hmm. Bringing it and back. I've heard it said that rock pigeons are the fastest flying bird for self-powered flight uh as a as a way of you know evolving to be able to try and get away from peregrine falcons which are the fastest overall animal uh, hmm. so they're yeah they're pretty uh pretty unique birds i believe it yeah they're they're also uh total chimeras too like they can turn into just about anything depending on how they're flying i've mistaken rock pigeons or rock doves for right. more bird more species of birds than i've mistaken any other single species they could look like a gull they could look like a falcon they could look like a i don't i don't know they can look like a lot of different things a grouse they can they can look like a lot of different things i feel like it's a rite of passage leading bird walks to yell out falcon (laughs) and uh, everybody looks up and it's like that's a rock pigeon yeah (laughs) (laughs) great looking rock pigeon question of the month um, Ken Kaufman published a really nice personal essay on the Audubon website that I hope everyone gets a chance to to read. Uh, it was on the event of the anniversary of his book, his memoir, uh, Kingbird Highway, which is one of the, the classics of the birding genre. It was young Ken essentially traveling, traveling all over North America, seeing as many different birds as possible and sort of his trials and travails and his personal journey in addition to his birding jersey journey. It's actually one of those, one of those books that is about more than just birds. Anyway, uh, it's been what 50 years since, uh, Ken's journey. And so he took the opportunity, uh, to look back at the last 50 years of birding. And as you can imagine, uh, the, the birding has changed a lot, uh, and lots of different, every just about every possible way. There's more information available. There's more birds available. Birder, the birding community has changed. Uh, priorities have changed. All sorts of that stuff. All that stuff is is quite different than it was when Ken started birding, uh, in a lot of really fun ways, I think. And it's kind of a fun thing to think about. So I'm looking at this panel right here. Um, how has birding changed since you started? What are things that you did when you started birding that would be completely out of place now in 2022? 
I, I think for me, it's my my um, my birding bag is just a lot lighter because uh, definitely when I started, I always had a field guide and a notebook yeah. and a pen uh, and my binoculars and heavy um, field guide too. Yeah, exactly. Heavy heavy field guide, uh, and I haven't had a field guide. I mean, I always have a field guide not too far away, but I I, I use my phone for uh, mm-hmm. now. You know, I started birding before eBird mobile came out and and um and before i you know had a good uh, app on my phone for for identifying birds so i think that's one of the main ways um and uh but i also i don't know to me and i'd be curious what you all think i also just think that uh the face of birding has changed so much even just in i've only been birding for maybe about 12 years but um you know back then i felt pretty young in the birding world uh and and now it just feels like there's a lot more young folks i think birding is getting a lot more diverse and there's just there's more ways for birders to connect we've got all these different um mobile you know messaging groups on telegram and whatsapp and and uh and that's just so different from what it was a decade ago when it was um much uh older i feel like and and much more listserv based and so yeah it it feels like it's changed a lot yeah, I was going to say something very similar to that because I, I started birding when I was eight years old and I did not know any other person, kid my age that was into birds. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> so, that. Yeah, Jordan's signaling that like we could have we could have hung out, but um, <laughs> I didn't tell anybody because I was I was embarrassed to admit it. Yeah. It was like, oh, this is not cool. No one's going to like me if I tell them that I'm into birding. Um, so I didn't really meet other birders until I was really like in college or just after college around then. So I it's changed so much, especially with like now there's college birding clubs. Like I feel like that yeah, started right. like right after I graduated. I really missed the boat. Um, and now Audubon has a whole like Audubon chapters mm-hmm. and in, in colleges. So I'm like, oh, I totally would have done that um if i had only known um but i did get to take an ornithology class in college and you know start to meet other people and um birds and beers started around that time and yep. now it's I, I i am a part of a larger birding community and it just feels so different than you know when i was starting out and didn't know about anybody yeah i when i was uh when i was a young birder uh in high school um yeah i, I felt the same way i didn't really tell people about birding i didn't think it was uh all that cool and so uh in order to be cool i joined a marching band which uh seems like sort of a lateral transition at, at best but at least it's a little more socially acceptable i'm so envious um because i i have a very similar story of being a young birder so i've been birding for about 30 years now which is also really mind-boggling to think that's three-fifths of what ken wrote about mm-hmm. um but yeah, I didn't know any young birders for a really long time. And I so wish I would have had those connections and friends. And like, you see how close the young birding community, like that sub community is now. Mm-hmm. And it's so wonderful to see and like support and everything. Um, so that's definitely changed, you know, having more, more girl birders, having more young birders, having more non-white birders, like that's exponentially increased which is again fantastic um ebird and technology is a huge thing like brody was saying i also have to say though even in the and and i'm biased i know i know listeners I'm, i'm super biased but even in the past two years 
I feel like birding has changed drastically and I really think for the better. Um, So I, I think as the third person kind of speaking to the question, I'm going to try and look at the next 50 years and be like, you know, let's, let's think about what is next, right? Because you have the history of birding where like field guides, the hard copy books was a huge thing. Then you had eBird. So what's next? And I think it's kind of this rallying community strengthening call of like bringing people together, being this impetus to really to climate action, to really, you know, move conservation efforts forward um, and make it so much more than it ever has been, which is really, really exciting to, you know, find out how many Venn diagrams and the middle of them can we do, you know? Yes, I'm sorry, Nate. I know you're going to get questions. I'll take the heat, but like, let's be woke and like (laughs) find the middle of, you know, how birds can help again, bring people together for social justice or, you know, move politics and really important legislation forward for both people and habitats. Um, This is just our opportunity to not take anything for granted and yet still have birds at the the true core of what we all enjoy and love so much. So I'm really excited to, again, reflect on all of this change that's happened in the past 50 years for birding. And then to say the potential is just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more coming and, and I'm here for it. Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, the social movement that birding can be a part of can be really important that the technology that we've seen change. I feel like I'm a better birder than I was back then. And not just because I've been doing it longer, but because I keep track of things more closely. Um, I used to keep my life list in a three ring binder with like college rule paper in there and like manually write down all the new birds that I saw. But like, I would only keep track of new birds. I wouldn't keep track of everything that I saw. Now when I go out and I do an eBird checklist, I have all this data that in the past I wouldn't have even cared about that can go to this, you know, this massive database that is doing amazing and amazing things with for birds for bird conservation for just people who like to geek out about bird status and distribution and birds doing weird things um all that stuff is just amazing i gotta interject too nate because you know community science is a whole new boom yeah that we've seen, which is amazing, like eBird, yes, obviously, but but just even the concept of that and realizing, you know, everyone has something to contribute is mm-hmm. so valuable. And talking about your old list, I was the same way. I so so again, huge shout out. Uh, Gabriel actually transcribed all of my historical lists, like twenty plus years of hard copy lists mm-hmm. on eBird. Um, and like I have years where I didn't write down house sparrows or yeah, or the new exactly. beloved rock pigeons yep. because why right yeah. we and then also um, this is a funny antidote for like changes and what I would not do now is I thought I was so cool and came up like I wanted to learn banding codes but no one taught me so I came, came up, up with my own and we had to like decode them but now <laughs> there's all this like stigma understandably because you want to have clear communication to not use banding codes in like group chats unless Mm -hmm. everyone knows what the banding code is um so the fact that i was making my own is like yeah no i would (laughs) never do that anymore (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i think the single yeah greatest example to me of, of how 
the perception of birding has changed. I was down in San Diego doing some birding and looking for a rarity, walking through this neighborhood. San Diego rarities are amazing because they're always in some random suburban neighborhood. There's just like a, you know, painted red start hanging out. So I'm walking through this neighborhood looking for this bird and this teenage, you know, uh, kid with a skateboard is walking down the sidewalk in the other direction. <laughs> I'm walking down the street with his binoculars and, and this uh, teen kid with a skateboarder who looks pretty similar you know also things from my childhood are also uh popular again so he was probably like wearing a nirvana shirt you know looked like probably me <laughs> back at that age and he says he looks at me and he says are you a bird watcher and i was just like yeah and he's like cool and I, was, I, just, I couldn't believe it it was amazing wow. it was it's gone yes. full circle because i was like when i was you i would not have thought that was cool yeah right. so being it's, a um, nerd is cool no that's that's what i've heard yeah, i know i know it's uh that uh, i've talked about this before this the the whole embrace your geek mentality is like a real cultural change and i think it's really carved out some space for for bird watchers for sure yeah it's neat, especially at a time when we need to be paying a lot more attention to the natural world, like like Jordan was saying. The birders, the old school birders are going to say, we've been doing community science for, for a long time. You know, I mean, these were some of the original projects, right? Christmas bird count, breeding birds. Yeah, surveys. that's true. Portland, Portland's on, I don't know, 105 years or something of their Christmas bird count. Um, so it's, but it's neat. We've been able to make community science so much more accessible and so much yeah, more inclusive. Yeah, that's a big thing. And, yeah. Yeah. I think there is something really gratifying about being able to see that the birding that you're doing now here in 2022 tie into those, that long history of community science, I, at least to me, like, I love the fact that when I go out, I'm, you know, thinking about birds and enjoying birds in this, in a very similar way that people did four generations ago. Um, that, that, that feels really cool too. Um, so shout out all those people, all the old heads who, who brought us here. <laughs> For sure. We, uh, at, and in Portland, we just lost, uh, kind of the central birding figure for the last 50 years. Uh, mm. he, he had written the, um, you know, sightings column for, uh, for the uh, Portland Audubon, uh, journal for literally 60 years, um, and had just been doing all these things for decades and decades, you know, 30 years as the as the secretary for the Oregon bird records committee, uh, all these things. And so, yeah, all this, this topic about you know, how birding has changed, uh, yeah, is poignant for, for folks in Portland because Harry Nels, you know, was, he would go every week to, to record a voicemail of the rare birds being seen around Oregon where people would go in and would call the phone number so that they could yeah, you know, hear what those birds were. I guess you guys probably grew up with the same thing yeah. and, uh, yeah, just passed away. And, you know, in the past, that sort of information would have been in their heads or in their notebooks. And the, and the fact that that information now can be in a place like eBird or the Breeding Bird Survey Database, the Greater Avian Knowledge Network, and people like us can access it in an easy way and, you know, see that timeline and see that line continue is just really gratifying as well. Um, I, I'm sure for them, too, because they didn't want all that information to be locked up. Like, they want it to be out there and people to use it and to learn from it and to build on it speaking of brody's phone service which i'm sure especially the young birder listeners are going to be like what <laughs> um we're that old now yeah. um but but yeah so you used to call in and and the one in my area 
um, in the DC area, you know, it was a weekly thing, right? So another thing too, not to take us down a rabbit hole, but that we could talk about are just rarities and how's that changed in 50 years? Because yeah, how many yeah. drop everything? Oh, I'm taking my lunch break now. Happen today compared to 50 years Way ago. More. Way more. <laughs> like, By the time right? you heard about so the don't... bird, it's been gone for five days back then. Yeah. You yeah. No one snitched to our supervisor. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan Rudder, Stephanie Belkey, Brody, Cass, Talbot. Thank you so much for joining me and talking about birds. This was a really fun conversation. I will have a link to all the stuff that we talked about, uh, including the meme that Jordan mentioned in the show notes. Please check them out and also links to the work that everyone there is doing. Um, they're all doing great things. Um, thanks again. I hope you have a great, a great fall. Thanks, Nate. Yeah, thanks so much. Good birding. Thank you. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are a lot of benefits like magazines, discounts to partners, opportunities to travel with us. You can get information at aba.org slash join. I have some shout outs to make this week. John Lynch of Jacksonville, North Carolina. Jessica Mansaras of Wallingford, Connecticut. Andrew Miller of Swanton, Maryland. Liz Soria of Calgary, Alberta. Carlos Zumaraga of Tampa, Florida, Faye Manning of Kwathiansky Cove, British Columbia, and Eamon Rorden Short of Oliver, what I assume is British Columbia since it was a gift from Faye Manning. Happy happy birthday to, to Eamon from Faye Manning and from all of us here at the American Birding Association. Welcome to the ABA. Thank you for joining. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, whose favorite multi-state first record was the Hearman's Goal that traveled up and down the Atlantic coast in 2021-22 and was a first for her home state of Georgia, among others. Technical production is by John Lowry, who picks the obvious Stellar Sea Eagle as his favorite multi-state slash province first. All the more exciting because it's still being seen and depending on its migratory urge might still add some states to its tally. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who fought over this. Greg eventually came out on top. Uh, he prefers the fantastic story of the hooded crane in Tennessee, Indiana, and Nebraska in 2011 and 2012. That was an ABA first, in addition to being a multi-states first. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media most everywhere as American Birding Association. But on Twitter, we are at ABA. If I had to pick my favorite multi-state first, it would probably be 2019's American Flamingo. It was apparently blown up the Mississippi following a tropical storm and represented first for Tennessee and my home state of Missouri. How can you not love a wandering flamingo? Questions, comments can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you so much for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.